I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 1962. The album, Inside Folk Songs, the artist, Shel Silverstein, and my guest on the phone is Mitch Myers. Thank you so much for doing the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Mitch, let's first uh, tell everybody why I'm talking to you about Shel Silverstein. Oh, um, sure. I am Shel's nephew. Uh, that's uh, for certain. I've been uh, his uh, archivist as well. We've been keeping an archive here in Chicago. I guess I should say I, I kind of run the archive. We have some people working with us, and we've been digitizing things for almost 20 years now and organizing all the materials and all the different idioms and forms that Shell wow. created. That's a That's lot of work. And also to start that 20 years ago, I'm curious, does it ever come a point where you're like, oh, this is digitized, but oh, this is with some older equipment. We have to re-digitize it. Does that kind of thing ever come up? Um, we uh, allowed uh, the record to be reissued by Water back in, I don't know, 2007 or eight. Mm-hmm. And I'm really not even recalling uh, the type of transfer. Uh, it was worked out. Uh, it licensed it. It was in, originally on Atlantic Records, that particular recording. Uh-huh. Um, but it exists in digital form, but that's out of print as well, so they are kind of hard to come by in both vinyl and CD. That's the way that I assume that you could probably get in iTunes and listen to the tracks and download the ones you like, and there's plenty to like. It's a pretty unique record for a lot of reasons. It's a good one to to pick if you want to look at Shell and kind of get some indications of where he was headed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, and because this is, this is early into... Uh, you know, I guess in my brain, so knowing as little about him as I do, you know, you grow up knowing of a certain Shel Silverstein. You get a little older, you know a little bit more about him. And then now, as a comedy album obsessive, I didn't realize he had done albums this early in his career. Yes, that's true. Um, you know, it's been, when you say growing up uh, and being exposed to Shell, and that's your experience with, if you're talking about the typical... Um, 70s or 80s, you know, the the poetry books or perhaps even the earlier classic storybook like The Giving Tree. Right. Uh, uh, Some people remember that. Some people do remember Light in the Attic or Where the Sidewalk Ends. Sure. Those are their experiences. Uh, But in any case, there were people that, um, young people that grew up uh, when Shell was at Playboy. Uh, Yeah. And really, I guess the point that I want to make about that is, Shell was developing his art even before that when he was in the service with Stars and Stripes, and he had put out a book of cartoons, military cartoons, um, in the mid-50s, and that was reprinted. He had uh, successfully gotten single-caption cartoons in both Sports Illustrated and Look Magazine uh, upon coming back from the service. Uh, That was a pretty exciting opportunity to imagine himself being a cartoonist. I mean, the New Yorker was right around the corner. All those things were in play. Right. Uh, he dropped off about seven or eight cartoons uh, for Hugh Hefner, who was starting his magazine at Playboy. I just got it up and running. Uh, left him there for a couple of weeks. Was kind of getting nervous that no one ever got back to him. Went to get his work. Hef came out in his pajamas. Shell didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> he wrote him a check for about eight eight cartoons. Uh, Shell was so very excited, but it was a Friday afternoon. He was running around trying to find a bank to get, cash the check because he didn't know if it would be good on Monday. Um, you know, there, so you're, you're kind of seeing a, a very young man becoming uh, successful, excited, flush with all the different opportunities. He was multi-talented. Um, 
when all of this was going on and we're leading, and I, I guess we should lead towards this record that we're talking about, Inside Folk, folk Songs uh, from 1962. While that was happening, he was doing feature-length cartoon strips, uh, not strips, but uh, travelogues for Playboy. He had put t- together uh, children's books. Uh, he had uh, um, uh, made a record already in 1959 called Harry Jazz, which was his debut record, right. and that was on Elektra. Um, the thing about that, though, is that he only wrote two or three of the songs on that record. It was more of his debut as a performer or an entertainer or even a personality I would say a vocalist, but I also, uh, you know, say that with uh, you know a grain of salt that Shell's voice was an acquired taste. Well, I'll sing you a song about the old 49, fastest engine on the Santa Fe line. On the 14th of April, she made a desperate dash, and she got there on time, and she did not crash. And on that record, he was doing more ragtime with the Red Onion Jazz Band, and that was recorded in New York. Again, he was bursting with talent, and he was given that opportunity, and he knocked that thing out right out. But Inside Folk Songs is more of a debut of Shell as a songwriter. Right. Um, and that's uh, the difference. I'm just going to point out the first one on Electra was produced by Jack Holzman, who was the owner of Electra and had a hand in all the great early folk records and all the rock records even that came out on that that label. Uh, Inside Folk Songs, the, uh, was, uh, the producer is Jerry Wexler with Atlantic. So again, a very, very, very most notable person of in Atlantic other than Ahmed Erdkin himself. Wexler's the person that produced Aretha Franklin and mm-hmm. everybody uh, you, that you could imagine. And I'll just go a little further. The next couple of records after that were on... Uh, a, sister company of chess records. It was called Cadet. Little, oh, sure. Oh, little chess piece. And that those two records were produced by Esmond Edwards, who had a great history as a jazz producer and produced Coltrane, you know, and uh, and had all that under his belt. And I will say that even the Wexler record, um, that was Tom Dowd as the engineer, and he also, he engineered everything from a Coltrane, Ornett Coleman, to an Allman Brothers session, Derek of the Dominoes, you name it. So, you know, he was coming up at a time where everyone was coming up in the early 60s, and it was very, very exciting. Um, this album is unique. If you want to just jump right into it, if you have questions, I'd be glad to answer them. But if you'd like to, um, kind of shows all these different things happening at once. It's a humorist at work, but it's also a serious songwriter at work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also... Uh, dabbles and has had success subsequently with novelty songs. Um, there's a, uh, a certain elements that are very much appealing to children, so we saw the future of that. Um, there's also two songs uh, to, to point out uh, just from the get-go, 25 Minutes to Go, uh, mm-hmm. associated with Johnny Cash, first recorded in 1965 on a record, I think it's called Sings the Ballads of the True West. And then... Lo- did it again. He liked it, so he did it for his live album, Live at Folsom Prison, and mm-hmm. that was 1968, which then preceded the following year when Johnny Cash recorded Live at San Quentin, and on that album he debuted Shell's song, A Boy Named Sue. What's so funny so, is when I, mean, I first heard 25 Minutes to Go listening to it today, I was like, this sounds like this should be a Johnny Cash song, not knowing I only knew of him doing A Boy Named Sue. I didn't know Johnny Cash had done that song. Yes, 
And then it was covered years later by, I mean, an array of artists, as you see some of these uh, classic songs get uh, passed on from generations, making them folk songs of a, of a type. Uh, Pearl Jam did it live. Uh, John Lankford and the Pine Valley Cosmonauts included it on a Executioner's Songs, which is basically an anti-death penalty record that, uh, you know, they used it in that kind of a uh, light. Demond de Galaz did a quite haunting and, and frightening version of it. Uh, Lou Reed did it live with Emily Haynes at the Celebration in New York City in the 2008 or something like that. Um, but anyhow, it has a great history, and it was, you know, obviously durable enough, and people still like to do it. Uh, the, and the other song that's of, of most note would be The Unicorn, yeah. Which, you know, we're talking 1962, and Shell's version is, is very sweet. And uh, the uh, Irish Rovers did it five years later in 1967. Uh, by 1968, it was a million selling smash hit. Wow. Um, probably for Shell's first million selling uh, songwriting credit. Um, and so I guess it's notable for that unto itself. And again, that's. Uh, when you talk about the unicorn, I mean, some people confuse it with Puff the Magic Dragon or some of these other idyllic childlike songs, sure. but it really has that durability and that sentimentality um, that you can't really deny it. You know, it's it's a little sad, it's a little sweet, it's, it's charming, but it's also deep. Um, and then the, the record bounces all over the place. I mean, uh, the, the first couple of records you're seeing in parodying the hipster mentality of the early 1960s and the coffeehouse scenario and the beatniks, bury me, first song, bury me in my shades. Yes. He's talking about an, a dying hipster and he's bequeathing his stash and he's <laughs> giving the, you know, all his buddies, his hipster buddies, all these you know instructions about what to do. Very referential of the time, very insightful, uh, and also very playful. Um, I don't know if I'm going too fast. Oh, like no, 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 no. You, you, there, I, I mean, I have thoughts on most of them, especially having not heard most of them beforehand, uh, because I, I didn't know, because you never know, you could associate him with it, maybe a certain movement or not, but I, my favorite thing to hear is if somebody is maybe associated with a, a certain movement, um, when they satirize it. I, 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 for some reason, have this soft spot for when people make fun of hipsters from a certain period like there's a there's a del close album called how to speak hip um that is well, then these guys are you're talking about someone else that came out of chicago exactly yeah del, del uh, acted in one of shell's uh, plays it's called the gorilla oh i didn't know he did that interesting okay yeah. but i understand what you're saying and it, it was of that type Mm -hmm. And the second song is Have Another Espresso. It's about a guy that's just sitting around and all this stuff keeps on happening. Going, what does he do? Just has another espresso. Uh, and, I mean, he, he, he was of that scene, and he was also lampooning that scene. But he was hanging around the Cafe Dante and some of the other um, coffee houses near Bleecker and McDougal in uh, the Greenwich Village uh, area. He had an apartment on Hudson Street around the corner for many years, and before that he was somewhere else in the village. And, and uh, those were his people, but they were also ripe for satirizing. Uh, I think there's a, and there's a book about the Beat Generation, and uh, in the early 60s there's a photograph of they were lamenting the uh, portrayal of the Beatniks because it had become commercialized and satirized. So they had a party, the death of, uh, uh, death of uh, the Beats, and one of the people hanging on the wall, sitting, leaning up against it, is, is Shell, uh, among some other pretty notable characters. So he was always in the right place at the right time. 
1958, Manhattan's Upper West Side. A young, well-off Jewish performer gets a taste for comedy in the village and tries out a new career as a stand-up comic. But this performer's father, who works at Columbia University, while he appreciates the performer's gift, would prefer a serious life for his progeny. Instead, the performer continues on doing the work they feel meant to do, and their diminutive firebrand of an agent helps the comedian get a serious start on a comedy career, opening for huge musicians and opening up the world to their new brand of comedy. If that sounds familiar, either you're watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, or you're going to be just as interested in the story that we have to tell next week on the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. In 2015, comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff inadvertently sent me on a mission, a mission he didn't know that I was on. That mission was to find missing stand-up comic Dick Davey. Next week on the Comedy on Vinyl podcast, join me for a special Family Albums episode as I try to find Dick Davey. Do you know, uh, and it's, 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 it's kind of a trite question to ask, you know, how did blah, blah, blah want to be remembered? I'm not so curious about that, but I am curious as to what his early goals were in terms of exposure. Like he's, he was great at all the things he did. Uh, even his singing, like, as you say, his singing voice is, uh, something that, you know, is, uh, an acquired taste. I, by the end of this album, I had acquired it. I really enjoyed it. So there's something about. You know, I know well, he, myself. As he a, knows how to use his voice. Exactly. Be, have a great, uh, to be a good singer. And I think he developed it. Uh, the first record, uh, Harry Jazz, uh, like I said, it was uh, the, he was backed up by the Red Onion Jazz Band. I mean, they played with Dave Van Rock, you know, not too much after that. I mean, it was of that raspy, bluesy, uh, bawdy, uh, you know, ragtime inspired, but then it just evolved. I mean, he became much more, like I said, with the songwriting came the nuance. And all the experience started to uh, compound itself. And, I mean, you know, this is a guy that's been tra had traveled all over the world with Playboy footing the bill and, and, and having adventures in countries uh, quite foreign to his own, as well as hanging around uh, back here in the States and uh, loving baseball and, uh, you know, just being an aficionado of the White Sox and Minnie Minoso would be his obsession or what have, whatever it would be. Um, then he got a houseboat in Sausalito in the 70s, you know, turned into a whole thing where he satirized that in Playboy, uh, Silverstein uh, visits the hippies. And there's two uh, amazing issues. It was too much for one issue. It was two parts where he it was in day glow colors, and, and he really did the same thing that he did on these first two songs in this record, which is this kind of being of that scene, wanting the same things everyone else did, but also making fun of it because it's pretty... As humans, we're pretty predictable in a lot of ways, and right. we're easy to make fun of. Um, the next couple of songs are also, you know, you wouldn't know it if, unless you were growing up in that time what they're about. Mm -hmm. uh, Bananas is a uh, satire on Harry Belafonte singing Deo. <laughs> I love it so much. And and if you don't know that, then, then this is, seems like a, a little oddball. And then the next song is about, a, uh, he's singing about a woman named Liz, and he wants to get with her. And he's got to wait for all, you know, um, Richard and and all these other people. Well, they're all, it's, he's talking about Liz Taylor and all right. the guys she married. And she's like, eventually she's going to get around to me because she had been married so many times. Right. It was really all the punchline that you needed. Mm -hmm. um, and But then it just, it does, I, I have to say, it does keep going. Um, this next song, uh, You're Always Welcome at Our House. Uh, quite a notable, a Dr. Demento favorite, that type of thing. Makes Dr. sense. Dr. Demento played Shell a lot over all the years. He understood 
what you are understanding now and, and getting a picture. And that song is about, it's supposed to be portraying kids as answering the door, as in, as in you please, and somebody's, you know, passing out foot bills or something like that, and they invite, ask them to come in, they offer them a cup of lemonade, and they poison them, they put them in the oven, uh, or they stick them in the freezer, or they stick them in the closet, and you're always welcome at our house, any time of the day. I mean, it's hilarious, and it's evil. I but love it's like it that, so much. That giddy kid evil, that, you know, everyone likes to be bad. You couldn't really write that song now. Right. Not with the same freedom and the same ease. Uh, because everything is so uh, imposing and everything's so real now. Uh, at the time, it was so, so abstract. I think that um, might have been one of the reasons that that's the first time I laughed out loud. I don't because li- I listen to a ton of comedy albums. It takes a lot for me to laugh out loud. I did five or six like huge laughs, distracting as you're driving laughs throughout this entire album. It's it's been a while since any comedy album's done that. Honestly. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're discovering it. Uh, like I said, there's plenty, uh, plenty to to dig in. Uh, for, this next song is very, uh, it's funny. It, it's it's an it's a bit of a novelty thing. It's called the Civil War song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will say that uh, you know it it starts out one brother wore blue, the other wore gray, and it, he's painting this picture of this you know, you know very solemn deal where no matter what nobody wins. And it, but then it's just like into razzmatazz, and I'm going to come back, and <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to stay home. They're going to one guy's going to fight for the for the north ones and the fights in the south, I'm going to stay home and chase the girls. And that's what the song's about. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's funny and it's crazy because he had to come up with that. But I would want to say that Shell had an interest in the Civil War mm-hmm. at this time. And okay. wrote other songs, Hey Nellie Nellie was portray- uh, performed by Judy Collins on her third record and again on her live record. And even Graham Parsons recorded a, a version of it uh, on a demo before he was famous. Uh, so it was a Civil War song, and, you know, the Vietnam War was starting to become an issue. Sure. And there was a lot of consciousness in the folk world, because like all these songs, well, they still have relevance today, whatever you want to say. There might have been that, but this was so much of a parody as well, and humor. And, and again, showing uh, his abilities to, to be raucous as well as to be serious. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm just looking at the song that says I'm following him in the order. Boa Constrictor was repurposed uh, in the children's uh, poetry books, but uh-huh. it's also one of the songs where Shell was very fond of, of abrupt endings. Because mm-hmm. like, it starts out, oh no, he's nibbling my toe. Oh gee, he's up to my knee. I mean, you know, eventually it's oh dread, he's a boo. I mean, <laughs> it, it's over. Uh, and you know it's. I mean, once you get it, I mean, you can't undo. You can't unhear that. You yeah, know? I think hearing and that the first time, I was, I was so much feeling. I'm like, wow. You know, you often wonder what would it be like if a cartoon came to life. It's very much as though a poem came to life in in a new way. And obviously, that's what music's supposed to be. But you hear the poet so much in his in his music. It's not something. I'm used to really. Uh, there's there's something very there's so much intent and so much character to how he performs it that like that's a thing that again is a kid's thing is pretty dark works perfectly fine for adults but it plays it, I don't know it was very fresh feeling to me even though I knew where he was leading it was so fresh I I loved it and I mean again uh, those first few uh, um, books uh, there was a character that shell uh, his, his pseudonym was. Not a pseudonym, but his 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 title was Uncle Shelby, uh-huh. and he did with the ABZ book or Uncle Shelby Zoo. And what they were, they really weren't kids' books. Uh, they were, and the one the ABZ book has a a a, 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 um, 
a disclaimer on the on the on the cover, not for children, because mm-hmm. it looks like it's so kid friendly, and it's actually now, at this point in time, fifty odd years later, m- mighty tame, and probably would not offend any parent. Right. You know, but it's still as it was created, it's been uh, maintained in that same way. It's gone through thirty two odd pr- printings, and it survives, and it's it's not. You never see it because it won't be in the children's section at the bookstore. Right. If you look for Shel Silverstein and you, you don't want to be a parent, oh, I'm going to buy this one and bring it home and be like, eek. <laughs> so for all these years, well, when bookstores were something, the place where you would get a book, uh, it would never get filed next to the, all the other Shel Silverstein books, which meant that it, it never had a home. Uh, and But it stayed in print anyhow because it was so durable. And the thing was, he was doing these kind of ch- parodies of children's songs or children's poems or children's stories. And then slowly, what really happened was, and the back of this record, uh, the liner notes are by uh, written by a gentleman by the name of William Cole. Mm-hmm. And William Cole was a editor at large, and he had uh, collaborated with a gentleman by the name of Tommy Ungerer, who was also someone that straddled both the children's world and the adult. Uh, and between the three of them, uh, they created uh, a lot of work, and then Tommy brought Shell over to Ursula Nordstrom at HarperCollins, and she convinced him to do children's books straight out and not be a parodist or a satirist. Uh-huh. But the, the stories are there. You're, and also believing in, you know, knowing songs like uh, uh, The Boa Constrictor and seeing the playful nature and saying, you know, that you're, you're right for this. And she convinced him, and that's how The Giving Tree was published on HarperCollins rather than with any other publisher. It was passed by other publishers because it was neither fish nor fowl, a little bit too somber for kids, maybe sure. simple for adults. It had this ambiguous ending. You brought a lot to it. It took years before that record, uh, that book really uh, started to sell. What happened was uh, ministers started to mention it uh, uh, in their sermons, mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of talk show people had, uh, had guests, and, and they read from it. And so it was like uh, a slow burn. You couldn't... Nowadays, you don't see a book take two or three years to take off and right. get noticed, start to sell into the millions of copies now all over the world. If a book doesn't make it in the first eight weeks, you can't even get a review. No one really wants to see or hear you. I mean, that's you know, that's the way it is. But it was a different world then, and by good fortune and and also quality control. I mean, these are the things that rose to the top. Um, we already talked uh, about. 25 minutes ago, but then again, that has, you know, a, a kind of an, uh, an inevitable ending, uh, this inevitability that he, you know, inhabits. Uh, it's uh, it's always quite notable. Mm-hmm. And, and his versions of these songs are pretty impassioned, and this was a few years before Johnny even tackled it. And, and once they figured out that Shell was... The guys in Nashville love Shell for uh, these reasons. He wrote hit songs, and he was from Playboy. Uh-huh. Okay, so you know you had the, you had the, the the mint and you had uh, the bonus. You know, I mean everything that that he he epitomized brought that humor. I mean, uh, Bobby Bear was a very dear friend of Shell's. He did entire albums, as was like Waylon Jennings did a whole record of Billy Joe Shaver. Bobby Bear did several records of uh, Shell Silverstein songs. And uh-huh. A great alliance and a relationship, and so they so they liked his storytelling in his songs. They liked the humor in his songs. They liked the novelty in his songs. It was just corny enough, just sweet enough, just sharp enough. I mean, whenever he looked, he would lull you into submission with thinking it was going to be one way, it would go the other way. One 
Jacket with the buttons made of pearls. I wear my tight blue pants and my gray sport jacket, and I stay home with the girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't wanna get to Gettysburg. No, no, no. I got a hot rod Ford and a tank of gas, but baby, and I gonna go, go, go. And the last phrase of a song would turn things. I mean. Not everyone does that, and not everyone sure. does it well. And, you know, his melodies were always very simple, very rudimentary pe- uh, uh, guitar player, piano player, composer. Right. Um, and so we go on. Uh, the Folk Singers Blues is another parody. I love it's this so much. The, the other title of the song is, What Do You Do When You're Young and White and Jewish? <laughs> and, and he talked about this on the Studs, on a Studs Terkel radio program back in the 60s. He's like, you know, What's the Jewish kid, you know, from the Burbs, going to write a folk song about being down in the mine? Mm-hmm. You know? And then this one, the mother won't let him go down in the mine. Or, or the only levy you know is the one that lives down the block, you know? <laughs> and that, I mean, boom, bang. I mean, just lampooning all those wannabes out there. Do you think... Now, of course, it's... Go ahead. Sorry, okay. do you do you think there's an element of his writing because you 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 talked a lot about, you know, they liked it because it was funny. They liked because there are these turns. Do you think there's an element that for people who are performers who are not normally seen as necessarily humorous or funny, these songs might make you, might help you get your own natural sense of humor across, make you seem funny when you're not that funny. I feel like these are like, these are a free pass for some people to seem like they have a sense of humor. You know, Jerry Wexler, I did get a chance to talk to him about this record and it's interesting as he he nominally is considered the producer but on the record it really refers to supervision uh-huh. uh jerry wexler so really he didn't have much to do with it other than putting his name on it and, and taking responsibility for the session with a guy named al brackman from the song publisher okay richmond organization but uh the point i was going to make was jerry did he's smart and whether it was true or not he said something that i thought was clever and i've heard it before in other instances he said that this record probably didn't sell more than 500 copies, or very, very few in any case. But they all were bought by songwriters from Nashville. Mm-hmm. Which isn't probably 100% true, but his sure. point is true enough. And and again, it's it's the the songwriting is, is liberal. Todd Snyder, a contemporary uh, um, performer, got all these guys, uh, Bear Jr., of course, you know, grew up with uh, Shell Around and, and adored him. He watched him playing and singing with his father. Um, generations are still getting turned on, and that's why it's nice that these songs get reworked or remembered or, or covered again. Uh, so let's talk about a couple more. Uh, sure. Beans taste fine. I mean, as philosophical and as matter-of-fact in this low-down uh, beat kind of way, he encounters a guy that won a million bucks, and, he's got, and he sees him at a restaurant eating beans. Yeah. And after you've been eating steak a long time, beans taste fine is the guy's answer. And that's the refrain, and that's the lesson. 
is that if you you can enjoy the finest things and you know, what you assume you know is only the best, and after a while you want something simple, straightforward, and to the point, and and that's what that song is about. There's a lot of beauty like that on this album, and it, I like that it's it can be couched in. Uh, obviously, like some biting satire couched in his like delightful growl of yeah, a voice. Yeah, there's a lot of glee. He's a very gleeful yes, performer. Yes. You know? And and the wisdom just keeps coming out. You you anyway you know you can't you could start and try and stick your finger in the second it's going to pop out somewhere else. You can't stop it from from really getting you. And then uh, talking about uh, the next song is really just like uh, Bola Constrictor. It's a you know, it's gonna stop short. Yeah. he won't catch me. He may catch others, but you won't. <laughs> and he, I guess the Sudagadi got him. I mean, it's just like this. He just couldn't resist it. I mean, it's fun. It takes about a minute, or I don't even know how long it is. You know, and it's out. Yeah. I, it says here 14 seconds, which I love that it's yeah. that short. Okay. Okay. Good. Because <laughs> it's been a while since I remember. But I do. I guess I remembered enough. Oh yeah. And um, um, you know, again, these uh, sticking with the point that. He was making fun of the times. He was a product of them. The song, It Does Not Pay to Be Hip. Yeah. You know, he's trying to get things done, and everybody's talking such jive that he can't get it together. He's like, you need some bread? He's like, you know, rye bread, wheat bread. I'm like, everything he asked for in hip vernacular because he's trying to be cool. You know, he he, he, he wants the ball with the chicken. He, he misunderstands what she says, and he leaves. I mean, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Because it does not pay to be hip. You can't, you know, you try to, when you're trying to be hip, you know, you've lost it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, thinking about as we go on, looking at the song Blue Eyes, mm-hmm. which is, again, very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's dramatic. I will point out that the, he's trying to, he's hitting on a girl. He just wants to ask her out. And she just keeps on adding, giving her, his, her excuse, and it gets more and more, because adding to it and adding to it. Like, um, and that part is performed by Rita Gardner. And the only reason I say that is that that was Herb Gardner's wife. Okay. Uh, I'm not rep for it, uh, you know, uh, uh, a great screenwriter himself. And that was his wife at that time, Rita Gardner. And, and these, these people were all up and coming. Uh, Herb Gardner and Shell w- would go down to Gene Shepard when he was had his radio show broadcasting out of New York. And they, uh-huh. would, they would invade and they would do voices, they would be a couple of old Jewish ladies sitting on a park bench. And, you know, later on, what happened with Herb Gardner? He did, I'm not rep report. You know, I mean, this, the seeds were all out of this excitement, and they were all trying and doing different things, putting on plays, making records, um, performing, etc. Yeah. And then be, in all ways. And so it was a hip little crowd to be around, and they were very, very happy and pleased with themselves, and, and with a lot of good reasons. And Shell was, you know, stood out because he crossed a lot of Borders. I think hanging around with Herb Gardner inspired him to actually write plays, and he had things uh, off Broadway and at uh, the Goodman Theater here in Chicago and uh, at Lincoln Center. Um, Billy, uh, the Devil and Billy Markham. It's a one man, one act, one man play. Uh, I've seen it performed a number of times by different people. It's pretty ambitious uh, and also amazing. Um, but that's another story. <laughs> um, uh, standing on the gr- outside of your edges might be like one of the more serious songs and it's of the performance they put a lot of echo on it and I'm I'm not sure if it works uh-huh I'm not sure how people feel about this or whether that's the one's gonna gonna if you're gonna be 30 seconds and listen to this you want to skip I don't know I don't know I 
mean, I'm just used to it because it's it's showing another mood, another side. And I think yeah. that was very important to him. And uh, because then we go back to the record of the old 49, it's the same, you know, <laughs> boop, boop, you know, end over, it wrecked it. So, you're just done. <laughs> so good. And, and then it goes back to this, you know, this hipster wisdom, you know, which is uh, words to live by. Uh, never bite a married woman on the thigh. <laughs> and he just goes on to describe all the terrible things that happened. They all rhyme with thigh, of course. Um, and I'm sure that you might get a kick out of playing that one. I don't know, but it seems like it's a very strong one. Mm-hmm. And, and people remembered it. And that was the hipster stuff. You also have to remember that these are the people he was hanging around in Chicago. There was like dozens and dozens of comedy clubs in the late 50s and early 60s and Lenny Bruce was a buddy of his and all of them came over to the mansion and all of them Hefner and they, they were totally supportive of the comedy and Nichols and May Shell was friends with both he wow. went on to write music for uh, the song I'm checking out for Postcards from the Edge uh-huh. um, I mean but and when, when you listen to that song about Blue Eyes and you have Rita Gardner giving the excuses why she doesn't want to go out with it, can't go out with this guy, she would, but she, it's the same thing as, as some of the type of stuff that Nichols and May had been doing in those years previously to that. Very much a Chicago humor. Yeah, I got to um, say, when I first heard it for a second, I was like, is that Elaine May? I didn't know the voice. And I, that was my first thought was, is that Elaine May? Because I didn't know. They all worked together. They all worked. They all so did funny. together. They all used each other uh, as best they could in, you know, to, in a creative way. Um, and that was, you know, coming out of Chicago, um, not that this record was recorded there, but, but the mentality and again, this file ending it with the unicorn. It's a poignant song. It's it's bittersweet. It's it's funny. It's cute. It's it's sentimental. Uh, it's memorable. Uh, his versions, uh, you know, far cry from what the unicorn, uh, the the Irish Rovers did. I mean, you you got to think it's kind of funny when a Jewish guy from Chicago wrote this Irish drinking song. Mm-hmm. You know, for the next forty years or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, oh. I mean, a lot of these, uh, a lot of songs uh, are on. There there was a tribute record put together by Bobby Bear Jr. and Bobby Bear Sr. Mm-hmm. and has a lot of, some of these songs on it and more contemporary artists performing them. Uh, I think it's My Morning Jacket or, you know, whoever. Uh, love them all. I mean, you know, whether it be Ray Price or Chris Christopherson or, um, you know, somebody from a different generation completely. Right. They're all, they're all we let Andrew Bird uh, adapted a lyric to, to music uh, was the only collaboration we allowed. Everything else was pretty much established as a song. Mm-hmm. You know, we've not uh, allowed much to uh, disturb the original uh, compositions. Uh, there are plenty of cover versions. You don't have to ask permission to perform a version. But if you want to adapt something, typical, you know, uh, you, typically you would want to contact the publisher and all that. Sure. So it's been very interesting to see his canon and the durability of uh, some of these songs and some of these albums. Yeah. Uh, after he did those two for Cadet, he, he went to RCA, who was he produced by his good friend Chet Atkins. Oh, wow. And that was the album with Boy Named Sue and other country songs. I mean, that's you're, you're talking about he's working with some pretty classy people that oh, yeah. you know, knew what they were doing, um, and they saw the talent, and they also liked working with them. I think it's very important just to say that, you know, Shell enjoyed himself with these people. I mean, if if it wasn't going to be fun, it wasn't worth doing. Uh, it doesn't mean he didn't work hard. It doesn't mean he didn't stay up late, uh, you know, <clears throat> working over the final detail. He was a perfectionist, I guess, if you want to use that word, but someone that wouldn't let go of something until it was finished. Mm-hmm. I mean, and held that high standard in all of his artistic efforts and in the way he loved his life and the way he hung around with his friends and the way he 
he did everything, and he expected that of his peers. And you could expect to hear honest criticism or honest feedback from him if you were going to try to collaborate or show him something that you were working on. Um, yeah, not big on excuses. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. But, you know, very, very giving, very, very loving, very, very, uh, very wise. I mean, it's funny when I spoke with Chris Christopherson briefly about it. Uh, it's not like I ever hung out with these people, but I did manage to go up and introduce myself and speak and tell them who uh, Shell was to me. And Chris said that regardless of how great Shell was and all the different things that he did, Chris felt, and it's also on the liner notes of, of this William Cole record from 1962, which you know was 40 years before I ever met uh, uh, Christopherson, is that uh, he could have but done even more. Mm-hmm. And that he was still holding back, which is really hard to get my head around. Yeah. Uh, except when you know when you're as an artist, you realize how much effort or energy one can spend not doing exactly what you need to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's if there was anyone that had enough distractions, uh, Shell was certainly somebody that was involved in so many things with uh, his songs, his books. Uh, his drawing and everything else in between. I mean, not just uh, as an artist, but as a, as a world traveler and and someone that was contributing to culture. And he, I mean, he wrote the soundtrack to movies back in '69. It was Ned Kelly, starring Mick Jagger, uh-huh. uh, narrated by uh, Christopherson. Song sung by Waylon on that record. It's it's a pretty unique album. He had done the songs for a um, movie card called Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me, which was Dustin Hoffman's follow-up film from The Graduate, and that was a Herb Gardner uh, screenplay, and Shell played a role of a singer in it. Okay. But uh, I would just tell you that Dustin Hoffman uh, studied for that role by staying on Shell's houseboat in Sausalito for a couple of weeks because the lead character, Dustin's character, was a very successful singer, song, a songwriter, who was having a lot of issues with somebody uh, spreading gossip about him, and also was kind of breaking down emotionally. Okay. And if it, if it wasn't, it was based somewhere between Herb Gardner and Shel Silverstein, and a lot of fantasy. It's a very unique film. It's got a lot of surreal moments. It's uh, certainly of the time. It was not well received. It was not remembered. Um, pretty classic. And Shel wrote all the songs on that. And performed in the movie at the Fillmore with uh, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show as his backing band. They played this some group, I don't know, and he was Dr. Love or something like Joe was Dr. Love. And they called Dustin Hoffman, whose character was in the audience and who had written the, the hit songs. And it was very interesting to see the parallels and the commentary. And we're talking about struggling with fame and also regrets, uh, you know, uh, of, of a young man turning his back from one thing to pursue something else. And, you know, choices we make, and there's only one way, you know, forward. Well, there build the gallows outside my cell. I got 25 minutes to go. And in 25 minutes, I'll be in hell. I got 24 minutes to go Well, they give me some beans for my last meal 23 minutes to go And you know nobody asked me how I feel I got 22 minutes to go So I wrote to the governor the whole 
damn bunch had 21 minutes to go And I call up the mayor and he's out to lunch I got 20 more minutes to go Well, the sheriff says, boy, I want to watch you die 19 minutes to go I'm always fascinated when I have archivists on the show. Like I, I, I've actually, it's been one of my things lately. You, you're a nice crossover because I've been doing some shows that I'm calling family albums, where we interview people who were in the family related to the people who made the work that we're talking about. But I also like to interview archivists. You are in a unique, uh, a relatively unique position in that you're both. But what's occurring to me and what I love in talking about you is you also, you're carrying around with you the oral history of Shel Silverstein, and I'm curious. Like, is to to you is that like your part of your responsibility, or is it just does it just come with the job? Uh, all those things. Uh, I mean, there, there's no way I wouldn't do it anyhow. Uh huh. Um, certainly a great resp- opportunity to kind of look at the collected work and say we're going to focus on like the first 20 years from 54 to 74. And we're uh-huh. going to chart every move that he made. and We're going to figure out what happened and who who was instrumental in that and. and uh, how exciting to have that opportunity and dig through all these old magazines. Sure, the yeah. Issue of, of Look magazine in 1956. You figure out what week it is, and you, you you find one. Nowadays, you just buy them. But we did, and even then, to figure out well, there was a single caption in the corner of a of a page in a Sports Illustrated magazine. It's not going to be in the index. You know, right. There's no record of it. You would have you go through you know, PDFs of a year's worth of, you know, you go blind. Yeah. And, like, the girls that work in my archive are, go, you know, they're librarians. They're, like, sitting there knocking it out every day, and we're collecting every song that Shell ever, that Shell wrote, uh-huh. every version we can find across in every country in the world. Wow, wow. He wrote about a 1,000 songs. If maybe four or 500 or 400 were published or something like that. 6,000 performances plus. I'm talking about Johnny Cash imitators from... Japan and guys with uh, handlebar mustache and Popeyes sticking out in you know France and Germany and uh, you know f- people fit and they loved him in Scandinavia. Shell traveled with Dr. Rook in the Medicine Show at one point in mm-hmm. the 70s when they were very 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 popular with songs that Shell wrote. Sylvia's mother, cover of the Rolling Stone, and he traveled to Scandinavia with these gentlemen and they played on uh, some Swedish television show. I believe it was Swedish. And they, uh, Dr. Hook, they took off all their clothes. <laughs> and so they love them there. They still love them there. And they love mm. Shell because he wrote all these songs for them. And they're very, you know, bawdy and nonsensical and crazy. And, um, so there's a fascination uh, besides just the children's books, which have been published in, you know, uh, dozens of languages and continue to, uh, you know, find new ways to reach new audiences. I think it's plateaued out as far as the awareness. I mean, it gets ingrained in the culture. Certainly it's going to be an evergreen for uh, quite some time, and, and there's there's uh, an appreciation. Um, in the 70s, I guess it was uh, Maurice Sendak, Dr. Seuss, and Shel Silverstein. Right. You know, But that was a long time ago, and we never... There's, there's no movies, like there's no cat in the hat, you know, coming out. You know, uh, one guy wanted to go, oh, we can make a book about... Um, um, uh, where the sidewalk ends, and who are these characters? And the guy go, well, it's a book of poems. They're not right. connected. Right. Yeah, but look at these people, and they could have all these adventures. And go, I go, you're just basically, you know, said where the wild things are. I mean, we can't do it. You know right. what I'm saying? We're yeah. not going to do it. Yeah. We could. Maybe someday somebody else will be in charge, and they'll decide to do all these things <laughs> that we've been kind of loath to embrace. Of course. And you know, you 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 lose uh, some of the continuity, but you 
you retain a certain amount of purity into the work, and that's very hard in this world. I bet. And to have a team that has that as a priority, you go into meetings or something, people just don't understand what you know what's wrong with us. You know. <laughs> but listen, the books are all in print. They do very well. We're very proud. We keep those. We did 50th anniversary editions a few years ago of like four different books at mm-hmm. the same time with the original covers and. You know, it's such a joy to be able to revise some of these things and to dig out some of the history and, and recontextualize it for somebody that might not have ever been exposed to it before. Right. If there's an interest and an appetite or if a parent still wants to read a poem to their kids, and, and we just came out with um, the second uh, volume of Runny Babbitt, Runny Babbitt Return, uh-huh. and that is a book of spoonerisms. Uh, spoonerisms, when you switch the two letters, uh, the beginning of two two words, the letters of two words. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're, you'd be Clayson Jom. Right. <laughs> now I'm I'm good. I'm still Mitch Myers, but you yeah, know. you're you're lucky. But every line of the, every <laughs> almost every poem and almost every line. Uh, I mean, two volumes worth. Uh, their poetry. You could read them straight if you want to flip them back, and right. they're still funny and ironic, and they still have the shell uh, illustrations. Those are all illustrated. All those books that people are familiar with, they were all illustrated by Shell. That's mm-hmm. His style, ink on paper, you're talking white, on, black on white, most 99% of the time. Uh, Uncle Shelby's Zoo was color, and the ABZ book. And uh, Again, it's the exception rather than the rule. And so... Uh, you know, it's 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 fun to be able to to look at all the uh, excerpts and the outtakes and things that didn't make it in the first uh, edition, and we picked them all um, as seriously. We roundtabled it for a year. Mm-hmm. We go around the room, and then next month we come back and they go, "Well, okay, we already said okay on these poems." They're like, "Nope, we got to read them all again." Uh huh. And just held it to that high standard that I was referring to, and I don't wow. mean to go off and on about no, no, no. This is what I'm talking about. State, but I'm proud of it. You know, you should be. I mean, that's that's just it. Uh, this could very easily be simply a moneymaker uh and but when the whole point is translating to people who a person was by concentrating on certain works uh making sure people still have access to them is super important so i mean that's that's a huge responsibility thanks we only recently just allowed the first book to be an e-book we went with the giving tree a few years back because Uh it was the anniversary and and certainly there's no, it's, it's not hard to understand why that would be appealing for many people. But I would want to say and add and give you and anyone that might be listening the context for that, no small decision, no small thing in that. If, all, if you look at all of Shell's books and you ever found a copy of The Giving Tree, Light in the Attic, With the Sidewalk Ends, Missing Piece, Missing Piece, Miss Big O, Runny Babbitt, uh, you name it, giraffe and a half, they're all hardcovers. Mm-hmm. Shell never allowed his books to go to paperback. Interesting. My none, God. None. The only one was the one ABZ book, which was originally oversized and paperback and still is. You couldn't do it. Uh, everything has been remained, and, and it, we've never had a, you know, a paperback edition of any of those books. Wow. That's, you know. And so to go to ebook, it's a jump. <laughs> sure. You understand the purpose, and you're reaching a particular audience, and that's important. Um, you know, I can get real, you know, philosophical and talk about the value of, of, of a, a physical object or or reading a book to your child and having it in front of you as opposed to looking on a screen. Um, that's that's an opinion, and that's and it's a different world that's changing every day. 
but they also to make sure that those opportunities are available if somebody does want them yeah. is something that we can be proud of and happy and just know that that's good enough for us, you know? Well, you know, and, and this is coming from a guy who owns, you know, five or six hundred comedy albums, which is uh, at this point too many. That's all? Uh, yeah, right, you. right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have a couple friends who are like, no, I've got about 5,000. And I'm I just. I'm going to give you a talking to when we're done here. <laughs> now, go ahead. No, but uh, for the first time in a while, I'm like, oh, I might actually have to buy this one on, on vinyl. You know, rather than try and find another way to listen, I never, I never do it because I usually have it sitting around. And when somebody introduces yeah. an album to me, I'm like, oh, this was fun, but I don't need to buy it. This is one I genuinely loved. Yeah, it 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 has made the rounds and it has uh, survived the test of time. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's pretty cool. I think so. Uh, if if you were gonna, uh, obviously, you've got a vested interest, but I think it's important for people to hear it. Uh, why listen to this album, and uh, where can people get the album? I mean, you can buy it on vinyl used, fine, but where else can, pe- can people get it digitally? You're I'm asking, curious. You're asking, you know, I'm, I'm, I would like to know. Like I said, I assume <laughs> you could buy it on iTunes. Probably, you know? probably. I, I hope so, man. I mean, otherwise you're going to have to find it. it. I think that these are the, this is the way it is. It's like you've got to work hard. You've got to you know, have a reason. Uh, I can't give you a good re- reason. If, if, you do, if you like raspy voices and <laughs> entertaining you know, personalities and, and a, a little bit of hysteria and a little bit of seriousness, uh, um, I think it, just, it, t- it touches a little bit of everything for uh, a receptive listener. Absolutely. Uh, somebody that wants to be entertained a little bit. That wants to be, uh, uh, you know, educated a little bit. You know, it's a it's a period piece. I think we could say that. Yeah. I mean, you have to be interested in early 1960s. You know, if you're interested in, in beat culture, if you're interested in the coffeehouse scene of, the, of that time. And like I said, I'll refer directly to Bleeker and McDougal, and that was the environment that the observations came from. You know, whether you, did someone drink a straight cup of coffee or did they order a latte? Did they know what they were doing? Did they know the difference? You know, are they trying to be hip ordering a cappuccino? I mean, it was all being measured back then, and the girls were wearing black tights and, you know, um, oversized sweatshirts. It was It was a funny, different kind of a scene. And they all hung out, drink another espresso. <laughs> See what happens. Something's going to happen. <laughs> I love this so much. This was, first of all, uh, a brilliant album to talk about. Uh, I could talk to you for hours about the archiving process, and maybe sometime I will have you back to talk more welcome. in detail about Come it. By. We're, we're open three days a week from 9 till 12. Oh my God! You know what? When I'm next in Chicago, I I will take you up on it because I would love to see what's happening. Um, can you tell the folks at home though where can they find uh, Shell's work, uh, stuff about the archive, your work? Wow. Um, well, I guess you would just have to do a Google search. Uh, um, I mean, the archive is not. Uh, open to the public uh, in a general sense, but by appointment, all you have to do is really, you know, kind of find me and, and have a good reason. We've never turned anyone away. Um, we, we try to underwrite. We're very big in literacy. We've had some very, very nice uh, cultural events, a celebration. We had one here in Chicago uh, at Millennium Park. Must have been six, 7,000 people. We did it in New York City uh, with Hal Wilner as our musical director, our, our producer, everything. He was fantastic. Great, great artists came from all over. Uh, it was a real uh, celebration. I mean, Shell's books—you know—you can find them where you would, but where you would find any books. Uh, uh, there's the, his discography is pretty impressive. I'd say there's about a dozen records that you can pick around. There's even uh, spoken re- recitations of *A Light in the Attic* and *Where the Sidewalk Ends*, 
which hearing it by the author, he has a very distinctive delivery. Um, I think the other record that we could have chosen to pursue, but I think it was this was a little bit of a more unique choice. Uh, everyone loves Freakin' at the Freakers Ball. Mm-hmm. And that was recorded in 1975, I believe. I'm making that up. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, all those guys were around. It was hang- He had the houseboat in Sausalito. Uh, they had had hits with Dr. Hook, so that everything was rolling. It was a really, really good time. Um, he, there was a song, Don't Give a Dose to the mon- One You Love Most. They used it on a, 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 an awareness for venereal disease <laughs> and, on, and uh, Bay Area television back then. You can find mm-hmm. that online. You can see... Uh, Dr. Hook and Shell hanging out at the house, houseboat online. Uh, the records, uh, look up the discography, you know, take your pick. Uh, I mean, the later ones were all produced by a guy named Ronnie Hafkin, for the most part. Um, and he, was, he, he, he took care of business and he knew, knew what he was doing, and Shell was more of a defined personality, and he was just doing it more for fun. Uh, he wasn't really, you know, trying to break out as a recording artist. It was just like to like I said, to complement the albums, the, uh, the books that had already come out and things right. like that. And, and he hung out in Key West a lot, and then he started hanging around with a bunch of songwriters down there. And they were all amazing. And then you know, all of his friends in Nashville, as I had said, uh, and and you see these gypsies and these uh, pirates you know, running back and forth, and some of them you know, went to jail for smuggling and then came back and wrote a hit song. And listen, he was friends with everyone from David Allen Coe, uh, I, I can't give a list. It's it's too it's too broad. And I'm too sure. Diverse. <laughs> but um, you know, there was a record of co- comedic stuff called the Great Conk ro- uh, uh, Train Robbery because the Conk Train was a little tour train that you took down in Key West to go around. I mean, it's an absurd and it's a long and vile story. And all the people's names that he uses in these songs, stories are the real people. It's I mean, amazing. This, he loved being around all these crazy people, and they were all exciting and different, and or just quirky and weird. He liked living near the water. He had a houseboat in Sausalito. He lived five minutes from the water in Key West. He lived, uh, um, you know, I mean, he liked, uh, in Martha's Vineyard, he was five minutes from the water as well. He liked little towns he could walk around in. He never drove. He never drove. Wow. He never drove. Um, well, I will make sure to point people to the... Factoid. I'm sorry? No, I just want to make sure I point people to shellsilverstein.com, though, at least, because that is a good resource yeah, to get. that's uh, curated by uh, um, HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very well tended. We work very hard on the bio. All the information is accurate. It's very, very complete. I think the only thing you won't find there are the more adult-oriented materials. Sure. And I didn't mean to give it short shrift. Uh, I, I forget there's so many things to, to be hyping. And Of course, we, of know, course. We let them do that. We don't, we don't <laughs> want to do that. We, we want to surround ourselves with art and think about funny and interesting and dramatic things. And, and Shell really, you know, gave us that kind of example that we're all following and, and and we're really proud to be associated with him and, and be part of his family and, and so keep good. a little bit of it alive. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, well, you know, keep keep me updated. If something comes out that I should tell the audience about, let me know. Um, I will just, yeah, just tell the people. Yeah, I should have plugged that. Ronnie Devin returns a little bit more and had it ready and read a couple. But. But. <laughs> next time. Next time. Exactly right. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I, I pleasure, do appreciate really. this. Thanks a lot. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on 
Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Thank you.